I learn more personally as a baker when I allow myself to completely mess up and not mess up in the way that like I'm not paying attention, but more like I'm going to let this overproof so I can see how far it's going to go or I'm going to really push the hydration to see what what can it take. We don't follow recipes, we follow formulas. Even if you have something that isn't what you were hoping to accomplish, it's going to taste better, I think. <laughs> if you have a flavor forward flour. This is the Sourdough Podcast, the show about the innovators, leaders, and creative trailblazers in our sourdough community and the stories behind the bread. On this episode of the Sourdough Podcast, I speak with Jennifer Lapidus about her new book, Southern Ground. We discuss her beginnings as a baker's apprentice in the 90s and how she eventually went on to found her own bakery in North Carolina. She shares how the financial crisis in 2008 affected her local grain economy, motivating bakers, millers, farmers, and researchers to work together, culminating in the movement that made the founding of her mill possible. I pick her brain about how to best cultivate a similar movement in my part of the country as she reflects on her own grain economy's evolution over the last few decades. Jennifer has an abundance of wisdom to share, so stay with us. You won't want to miss this episode. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our latest contributor to the podcast, Joffrey Ehrlich, out in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you so much for your generous contribution and for helping to make this episode of the Sourdough Podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please consider contributing any amount by visiting thesourdoughpodcast.com and clicking on Donate. You might even get a shout out on the podcast. And now, my interview with Jennifer Lapidus. My guest today is Jennifer Lapidus. Jennifer is the founder of Carolina Ground Flour Mill in Asheville, North Carolina. Before she was a miller, Jennifer founded Natural Bridge Bakery, where she baked her naturally leavened breads in a wood-fired brick oven. I'm honored to be speaking with Jennifer about her recently published book, Southern Ground. It's truly a love letter to Southern craft bakers and a celebration of stone-milled flour and locally farmed grains. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I'm so fascinated with uh, your work, everything you do and, and have have done. Uh, and I'm so glad um, Betsy Gonzalez put us in touch. Yeah, Betsy is so lovely. Yes, she um, she was a guest of mine a while or last last season. And uh, yeah, I've just I love watching from afar um, this amazing uh, local grain economy you guys have going in the South. It's just uh, so inspiring to me. My friend Dave Bauer, who's with Farm and Sparrow, um, you know, he was talking to me, I don't know, it's probably been a few years, but he's like, you know, we're really doing something here in the South. Like, it's hard to know because I just figure everybody is and, you know, everything's shiny and lovely from like where one's, you know, the grass is always greener, everything's shiny. We're just like dealing with, the South. But then I realized, well, actually all these bakers are using our flour. This is good. You know, we're building something together and hopefully this is, you know, what the landscape is looking like everywhere or is heading towards or, you know. Well, that's the, that's the dream, you know, and, and I'm out here in uh, the central Valley of California, kind of the, you know, the bread basket of California. And, um, and I'm, like I said, I'm just, uh, I'm dreaming about having something like what you guys have in the South happen here, you know, cause we have smaller mills maybe on the West, you know, but they're very scattered. You know, we have like Griston Toll yeah. in LA and, and, but nothing large, you know, that large anywhere close to where I am. So and we're not I, large by any means. <laughs> we're tripping over ourselves trying to do what we're doing, but, um, you know, and I'm, I'm super inspired by like, you know, Farmer Ground Mill and Janie's Mill and, um, and, and Main Grains. And I mean, you know, there's, yeah, it's, but it's so exciting to see everybody's sort of their own iteration too, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, I know it's, I know this book that you've put out is going to be an inspiration and and we'll continue to push that boulder up the hill, you know, and, and will really motivate, I think a lot of people and, 
and just maybe even introduce them to uh, Stone Ground Flower and the possibilities there. So, uh, but yeah, before we get into the book, I just wanted to say congratulations on your uh, release and and just accomplishing uh, something big and 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 on such a beautiful book. It's it's been a pleasure for me to dig into these last uh, few days. Thank you. It's really funny that you should use that analogy, the pushing the boulder of that, because that <laughs> who I'm forgetting, of course, the Greek got, you know, the one that was like pushing the boulder up the mountain and it would come down on mm-hmm. him. And I've, I've thought that a lot over the years, you know, the grains movement trying to rebuild something like, I mean, it's, I think, um, local tomatoes are, um, was it, it was, it was an amazing thing when the local war movement began. Um, and, you know, I have often thought, you know, it was probably harder to not do things local with things like tomatoes than it was to do them local, you mm. know, in terms of like, um, well, now we have to like gas it or whatever to transport this stuff or however. But with grains, it's like there's there's a whole infrastructure that needed to be rebuilt. And um, it's Sisyphus, isn't it? Is that the one with the is boulder? This Prometheus? I don't know who Ugh, it is. I know, right? <laughs> but anyways, I thought of that over the years, like, oh, is it, it's coming back down on me. No, I'm going to push it. So the idea of the book in a way was like, okay, I'm going to give this like a really, I, I'm going to kind of come go into my hole and work on this book for a few, you know, a couple of years. And then, um, and, and this will, the hope was like, kind of get, get it to where I'm no longer just like, little mini steps, but that we can push this forward and, you know, putting recipes out there for hopefully, you know, the the pandemic has not been a good thing in in any way, shape or form, but it's been an interesting thing for those of us in the milling industry and, and watching, you know, watching the popularity of home baking and and sourdough. And so to come out at this time where, you know, when there was such a rush on flour and they couldn't get flour in the grocery store, we were there, which was incredible. Yeah. And so, and I've always felt, um, you know, why not step in? I mean, I learned how to, I wanted to learn how to garden and start it, you know, when I was, when I was much younger and um, I had my first gardening experience, I mean, beyond like with my parents or something mm-hmm. on a biodynamic farm, you know? So I thought that's what gardening, like biodynamic was organic. <laughs> so I say that to put it in the context of like, why not start with stone ground and natural leavening and that yeah. whole, you know? So part of what went into the book for me, as I was deep into edits during that um, you know, the beginning of pandemic was like, I really wanted this book to be accessible to anybody who, you know, people who had never stepped into mm-hmm. their kitchens before and were bringing up, because that's what we got. We got people coming to our doorstep exactly. that were asking us questions. It wasn't like the avid home baker that we were used to interacting with, not our wholesale bakeries, but like the people that, you know, buy from us retail online. Usually those are, you know, bakers that are, good and intimidating for all of us because they just yeah. want to talk about the technical aspects of this and that. And, um, but these people, this new wave was like what, you know, they knew nothing. Mm. And so the opportunity to kind of allow people to step in with something that, that delivers more than just function, you know, that can hopefully inspire one to kind of go deeper. And, and the, and the recipe book, I mean, it's a book that has recipes. It's about a third narrative, as you know, and then two thirds mm-hmm. recipes, um, you know, the, in, in vetting them, I really wanted to, I mean, I was, I was sort of translating them from the baker to the home. You yeah. know, I found myself like in this middle position where I had been, or I am as the miller between the farmer and baker. Suddenly I was like, okay, I'm, I'm now between the professional baker and the, and the home baker and trying to kind of, um, you know, make this accessible and, um, and demystify, stone ground flour and, you know, normalize stone ground flour and not just stone ground, but regional stone ground. Like there's, you know, you you did a really good job. I thought of demystifying it. I think that's a good phrase. And, um, and in your, it's funny that you brought up like COVID baking. You're getting ahead. You're getting way ahead of me with all these questions, but you're hitting, you're like, we're on the same page. Um, (laughs) but I was, maybe you can tell us before we jump into that, cause I'm like ready to go. But for our for my guests who maybe not uh, aren't aren't familiar with you or or yeah. live far away from the South, can you give yeah. us a quick maybe intro to maybe your story and, and how did sure. you get involved uh, with milling and baking? Yeah, 
So um, I started out as a baker in back in the 90s. I apprenticed with a man named Alan Scott. I had a couple of apprenticeships, but Alan was sort of like, I have arrived. This is, you know, I was, I was wanting to, um, I had been baking a little bit after college and, you know, just like, I mean, this was the early 90s. And so it was like, you know, flour, water, salt, oil, honey, whatever's going to go in that bread. And I always... It's, I was, I had been a history major in college and just sort of had this gut sense about this should be more, you know, I was fascinated by it, but also like curious about what, I don't know. I just felt like I was just really skimming the surface, but there was very little written. Clearly there was no internet to, I mean, no worldwide web no. to search and, very different. um, you know, I stumbled upon a recipe. I mean, a article, um, when I was on that biodynamic farm on the, um, it was an interview with Richard Bourdon. So there mm. was it with Berkshire Mountain Bakery. And there there is, I think it's Berkshire Mountain. I may have just conflated. No, I think he's in yeah. Okay. Okay. Um then I said the wrong thing earlier to somebody else. But regardless. Um so you know back then there was sort of like the world of macrobiotic and then the world of artisan bread. And it was just like sort of brown bread, white bread, mm. um, in, you know, in, in the world, you know, like sourdough, San Francisco sourdough and this sort of, but, but this article, different worlds kind of going on. Yeah. And this article really inspired me because it was, first of all, it sort of gave a glimpse in that there, that natural leavening was a thing. And also it was just so, um, it was, it was beautifully written and it was soulful and it was like, this isn't health food. This is like real food, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when I finally landed Alan Scott's, it was, it was exactly what I, you know, there was the, he was, a. for those of you who don't know, he, Alan was a oven builder and designer. Um, but he also baked this Flemish natural oven bread. So I was an apprentice with him baking bread. We did a little oven building stuff, but he was like, yeah, I'll keep you in the kitchen. <laughs> it's better. Um, so we baked. Um, and went door to door and, and, um, delivered. And this was 93, I think. And it was an interesting time in, you know, in Marin County, California, a lot of sort of, um, the beginnings of, of, I mean, the bread movement has just continued to swell and swell and swell and yeah. grow and, and mature and diversify. And it's been so exciting to watch it over all of these years. Um, so anyways, the long, the long of it is, to do the bread that we were doing, we needed to start with fresh flour. Mm. And so Alan was milling in house and he um, introduced me to his friend, Roger Jansen, who built the mills for my bakery when I started my bakery in um, Tennessee. And then I moved to North Carolina, which is, you know, wood fired oven and naturally yeah. leavened, this Flemish naturally leavened bread. I sort of expanded on that, but everything was, um, you know, I milled all my whole grains in house. I, I didn't do any sifting at the time, um, I had, I bring in sifted flour, but, um, but that's been an interesting kind of art form to bring in to the milling scene for me. Mm. Um, but anywho, so I did that for 14 years and I, you know, I was also raising my daughter, getting tired <laughs> and, um, it took us to about 2008 when the price of wheat, um, yeah. really, you know, the wheat crisis happened. There was just a number of factors that sort of led to this. I was, I, that we have a public breeder in the South, Dr. David Marshall, who had actually started bread wheat trials in the early two thousands. So this was sort of like a, a separate narrative that was going on that just sort of like kismic. I mean, it, it was just this perfect storm of like bakers being dealt a really raw deal. Mm -hmm. You know, the price of wheat was had at its worst 130% increase. It wasn't something you could pass on to the customer and the quality was really low. It was just, and it was so out of our hands. And it was the first, I think it was, it was really the first time that this relationship between the farmer Miller and Baker came into question. Like, are we mm. that removed from our, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I had wanted to work with, with local growers. Like I had um, my friend, Dave Miller, you must know Dave out there and yeah, he's in Chico there. area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, he, he's such a fine baker <laughs> and I've known him for years. And um, I remember he had some, he probably still works with these guys, these biodynamic growers. And um, I was really intrigued by that and reached out to them. I mean, of course they weren't in North Carolina. I just was like wanting to connect with a grower and the guys were like, yeah, happy to sell you 40,000 pounds of grain, you know, but I was this little micro bakery. <laughs> yeah. So I, I remembered that when I started, you know, I had this idea, well, we have a number of bakeries in our area. 
what if, and you know, I, I basically the folks in the USDA ARS had USDA ARS had sent us samples of wheat from their trials. We had success with that. There was a field day, which kind of brought a bunch of us together with bakers and, and we all knew each other, the bakers in the area. And I got inspired and wrote a grant proposal. I mean, it was just like sort of one mm-hmm. thing led to another. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know until we, I mean, I, I ended up with Alan's mill. Um, Alan passed away and, um, and Leela, his daughter felt like, you know, my, I mean, he was definitely my mentor and, you know, it was just sort of this perfect, I mean, we, we paid the Scott family, but it was, it was just like all of us. An amazing gift. It was, it was, and it really was, it, it was really fun to get the sort of the public entities, like, like the land grant university or the public breeder and the, um, the research station, like they were involved with it too. So, so the guys from like, we had it sitting at customs. There was this whole, like, like grant money that needed to be spent before the end of the year. And this Mm. thing is moving. Uh. It was just this, like, they brought the mill over on an open truck. It had driven across the state, you know, this beautiful wooden mill. It was just like, yeah, it was a very exciting thing. And the whole idea was, this was going to be sort of something that represented um, you know, we wanted something that even though we weren't milling yet, the farmers could see that we were serious, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. we're not just another market that's, you know, we're, we, we want to set you, we want to, yes, we're asking you to grow a variety of yeah. wheat that is going to yield half the, you know, get half the yield will cost twice as much. We, we even want you to like not push the yield too much because that <laughs> might mess with our baking quality. So we're like, oh, and it has to be food grade, but don't worry. This is good for you. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, I mean, so yeah, it, it all kind of, I probably told you more than you want, or maybe not enough. You do, you do a really good job of kind of uh, weaving all of these narratives and these like challenges, you know, in these kind of waves of, of movement and waiting and, and all these things. Uh, the book is uh, the, the story section of that. I really enjoyed just digging oh, into and, and just uh, seeing the, the energy and just kind of how things kind of fell into place. Not to say that there weren't hurdles, but like uh, and still are hurdles. <laughs> yeah, still is still is a hurdle. But um, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, COVID bakers because what I found so interesting, because um, like you said, one of the events that kind of jump started this whole thing was the uh, the commodity wheat price spike yeah. in two thousand eight, and and that was kind of like after the housing bubble burst. I imagine had a yeah, large Russian role commodities. Yeah. And, and it just reminded me, you know, so many about so many stories I've heard of like COVID bakers, new COVID bakers, you know, having only discovered local mills and, and grain sources, you know, after flour and bread disappeared from the stores last year. And so it, there's just like that interesting, like, um, you know, there's the, there's the concept. And then once the rubber hits the road, it's kind of like, oh, wait, you know, our systems aren't as stable as we thought they were, or these things aren't as um, dependable as we thought they were. And I was wondering, you know, and so part of that, you know, but that was the only way a lot of people were introduced to maybe local mills is because of the desperation for, you know, for for that uh, flour or, or bread. And I was, you know, other than, you know, (laughs) catastrophic events, you know, can you talk maybe about the challenges of of kind of reacquainting people with stone milled flour uh, and and the idea of local grain economies? Because uh, wouldn't it be great to not have to rely on like (laughs) these huge catastrophes to like get these products or or, um, flavors and and grains into people's houses? Right, right. Um, You know, it's, I think that a lot of a lot of the pieces had come into place that created some momentum. Um, when we first started, I was milling in house, and I had you know the Asheville Bread Festival was sort of a foundation of a lot of this because we started the Asheville Bread Festival in two thousand four, and it brought those of us that are bakers in the area together. So we became mm. friends, and we sort of remet at like we this was you know we weren't it's so fun to watch the baking community now because you all are all connected on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I like, you know, I sort of feel like an outsider insider kind of, I'm like a little bit of both worlds, but yeah. you know, 
Like I did my first Instagram live, like a, a demonstration. <laughs> I a few, saw that. Yeah. And it was sideways, you know? And I totally, <laughs> people were like, oh, we feel so bad for her. She's oh, like, you did one today too, though. Oh, I did that today. Flower but I mean, like the first yeah. one I did was oh, okay. like sideways. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh God, I shouldn't even try. <laughs> but anyways, the point is like those, those bakers in the very beginning, I milled in house. So I knew, you know, and I was, I mean, I used some, sifted flour, but I was very whole grain driven and, and, and driven in this, like we want, you know, I was very driven to create, you know, to show that, that through flavor and through fermentation that we could elevate whole grains, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but a lot of the bakers that came to the table early on that had been baking for quite a while, you know, I think that the early on stuff was a little more challenging because you also had this wave of baker that came in, which I sort of discovered during um during my interviews really was that there was a there was a number of bakers that came to the table because they were graduating college um in 2008 Mm. and so there wasn't a jobs market Mm -hmm. and it was really interesting to me with that just because they're known as the um i think it was like the new lost generation and and so the other lost generation was of course Mm. like henry miller's era you know and so, which is so interesting because you think of like what creativity comes out of yeah. disaster, you know? Um, but so by the time something like COVID happened, I feel like we've had so much, not just momentum, but like um, this acquainting, you know, one being acquainted enough mm. with, with regional flour and being willing to interact with one's ingredient on a level that maybe those people that, we all started out, we're not, you know, it was like, oh, baking's challenging enough. Now you're going to give us another piece that we might not know X, Y, Z, you know, but, um, so, you know, I think that in a way, I mean, and something that I, I hope I conveyed in the book, I tried, um, and I, and I kind of was hoping that like in the after fact of the book, if there's like, you know, like this experience where it's like, you know, baking is so much about just doing and listening and, and doing again and Mm -hmm. and not be, you know, I mean, I learn more, you know, personally as a baker, when I allow myself to, to just completely mess up and not mess up in the way that like, I'm not paying attention, but more like, I'm going to let this overproof so I can see how far it's going to go. Or I'm going to really push the hydration to see what, what can it take, you know? Um, and so, I mean, we don't follow recipes, we follow formulas and even with pastry, it's like, you know, even if you have something that isn't what you were hoping to accomplish, it's going to taste better. I think (laughs) if you have a flavor forward flour, as, as long as you've got your flavors, you know, you're not going to want to try and make a white cake with whole wheat flour, but Mm. what about, you know, using whole wheat flour with warming, you know, like bitters or, you know, like dark chocolate or, Mm. or cardamom or something that you think is going to just sort of, um, marry well with what the flour itself is delivering. And I think that part, that changing the conversation, you know, speaking more in culinary terms. I mean, I, we've seen this in, in the, in the world of coffee and of course in wine and in chocolate, you know, exactly. that's sort of like, okay, we're going to get down and, and really look at these products as, you know, agricultural, you know, this is a crop. It's not just a fungible commodity. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds like what you're saying is like, depending on kind of people's entry point into bread, uh, artisan bread, this, this movement, you know, there's different, you know, phases in the nineties and two thousands and post you know, recession, like depending on kind of how they came into the bread scene, if you will, like will kind of um, shape their readiness or, or, or ability to uh, accept these types of, of, of ingredients, you know, or how they even view them in the first place. Or it sounds like the people that you came up with or, or were talking with you know, at the, at the Asheville Bread Fest, they were ready and waiting and like very open to this where different people coming in, uh, you know, maybe post pandemic or, 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 you know, COVID or, or you know, uh, economic turndown, you know, or even just like experienced bakers, you know, um, from the old school or something, just 
they might have a different expectation. And um, yeah, the old school is where like, I feel like that's the biggest win where, you know, and I have, um, I love that like Harry P. Muller and Lionel Bettine are completely on board in our world, you know, in fact, mm-hmm. pushing this forward because, um, because they're both master bakers, you know, one from Germany and one from France and, um, but have been in America for a goodly amount of time, you know, um, and the fact that, yeah, I, I love, I don't know. It used to be back when I was baking that there was sort of, um, silos of bakers, you know, there was like, it's kind of on the fringe that I was the Alan Scott world. We were a little more hippie, you know, <laughs> than the like San Francisco baking Institute or something like that. But, um, and then there was like the folks that went to culinary school and the folks that apprenticed. And there was yeah. just sort of like, you know, what's your hydration. That was like, I mean, I used to push the hydration personally and that would offend the hell out of some people because every loaf of bread should look exactly the same, you know? So I was kind of like this different, and they were sort of like, we're a community, but we're also like, not quite, you know, all drinking the same Kool-Aid or something. And, um, but, but I will say with the regional grain movement, I feel like it has been this lovely democratizing place. It Mm. has been, I have been so excited to see, you know, like, Johnson and Wales and the bread bakers guild Mm. and like, you know, like all the different strains of the baking community learning from each other, you know, there's such a strong camaraderie. I mean, from, you know, it's just, it's really, for me, it's the most heartwarming thing, you know? I mean, even with like, I was talking with Greg Mall the other day from farmer ground mill and we're just sharing information and I'm like, I love this, you know, this is, this is great because we really, you know, want to, all of us in the milling community want to like bring each other up. It's hard enough to do what we're doing. Um, I think being sort of proprietary with the information is just, mm. it's just not helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly doesn't help me, but you know, I mean, kidding, yeah. but seriously, it doesn't help any of us. You know, I think sure. that we all want to move this forward and um, you know, so it's, it's good. Yeah. I, you know, it, you know, we're talking about the, the old school and, or just any, you know, any, any approach you got people who I think really depend on, um, consistency, like, uh, results being the same in every bake after every bake. And so they might be less likely or, or voluntary about, you know, taking on a new product or a new style of flour or, uh, a differently produced flour, like a, a cold stone milled flour, like you guys do. Um, and so I think a lot of, you know, and, and a lot of new bakers, again, once you start talking about things that are not AP uh, or all purpose or pastry flour or whole wheat, once you get out of those categories, it, it kind of gets scary for, you know, new bakers, you know, or people who are just getting into it. But you do such a good job, I thought, in the book of describing, you know, like extraction rates and uh, ash content and stuff like and, and bringing it down to like our level because uh, I, I even get lost on the con, you know, I have to like, wait, wait, tell me again, what is a set, you know, type 75 or eight, you know, because even, even though I'm in the movement, so to speak, you know, like I'm on board, I have a cottage bakery, like I might not have access to that stuff. And so it's, you know, I'm still new and I'm still using the flour that I can get a hold of. And so, but you did a great job of, of, of explaining that yeah. and kind of your process and why your flour is different. And, um, and part of that is you categorized your recipes by uh, type of grain and uh, even subcategorize them by extraction types. And I was wondering if you could maybe uh, expound on kind of like the significance and intentionality in that. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Um, I think, Part of it, well, I, for one, I, I, you know, I definitely wanted this to be, um, the whole book to be flower driven. That's the, our protagonist, you know, <laughs> coming from the writer end of me, but, um, but I really wanted to be able to show also, especially when I divided it into sections where the flavors and textures interact well with the grain, you know, or with the sifting. Um, I mean, the rye chapter is different because rye is different. It's, it's a whole other entity, but I was so excited to have like, you know, half of it be bread, savory, half of it be, you know, sweet, whether, you know, and, and, and just kind of 
throw it all in there as a mix because rye really does mm. kind of stand outside in a lot of ways. I mean, when we're sifting, it's always like, okay, this is it's just it's it's a it's its own we it's yeah. its own entity, you know. And it For was sure. fun writing about rye and understanding rye a little bit better. But in terms of um, you know, going from whole grain to high extraction to you know less of an extraction like a 75 extraction or you know in the bread realm or you know looking at the pastry i i felt like i mean there was one point where like i had two recipes i was really excited because like i had two recipes for like a similar thing like um one it was a citrus cake basically an olive oil citrus cake um but the, but the bakers, it was from bakers that, you know, had taken very different approaches. And I was like, mm. oh, this is great. Because one of them was like high extraction, pastry flour, and she used orange juice. And it was, you know, with some roasted citrus on top. It was just like a very, um, and then the other one was like a much more refined flour and used cream. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so you could see that the choice of ingredients and the flour extraction, same grain, different, si- well, actually it may have been anyways, definitely a different sifting. I should be looking at that before I speak about it. But, um, I think that, I think that if I'm right, that the one that was more refined may have been our Trinity, which is an interesting flour because yeah. the Trinity has, it's, it's, one of our iterations of an all purpose, but you know, of course it started as a mistake in the mill room, <laughs> but you know, when you put rye in the mix of soft wheat and hard wheat mm. and we sift it, the rye is going to contribute tenderness like the soft wheat, but in a different quality with a little flavor there too, yeah. that the soft wheat's not going to contribute. The hard wheat's going to be there for, you know, more structure. So, and it's, it's just a, it's a lovely, delicate flower um, that has been really fun to watch people, you know, see how people are using it. But, you know, kind of looking at these recipes instead of it just being like, here's bread and here's, you know, pastry or here's cake or here's pie. Yeah. I really wanted the flower to be, you know, put front and center. So mm-hmm. people, you know, but at that being said, I'd still say, hey, if you don't, you know, use whatever flower you want and see how it works because, I, I think that there is that opportunity to step in with a recipe. Maybe you can only get high extraction, not a 75 extraction and use the high extraction and see, you know, if an adjustment needs to be made or not. I mean, if it's bread, you probably need, need to make an adjustment if it's, I mean, but not, I mean, this is why I, <laughs> this is why I provided nobody wants to hear about baker's percentage when they're not a professional baker. I've tried. I've been warned more than once. Don't try and teach it. And I have numerous times had an audience of glazed over, like their (laughs) eyes just glazed over. So in an attempt to make this book very user-friendly, we kept the baker's percentage out of the the actual recipe and then put an index in the back. That was very cool. Because I really wanted this to be a, a, a very not intimidating book and, you know, but if you want to get deeper, it's there. I thought, I thought that was so approachable um just this way of categorizing the recipes by by grain and extraction it just for me it was like it really helped to and obviously you kind of describe the differences before but you get to the recipes but for me it kind of like put into context when you would want to use this type of flour mm-hmm. why you would want to use it how what the applications would be and how it would like uh highlight that flour in a special way and so it, it made it yeah. very uh uh, tangible. I think it'll be very approachable for new b- bakers. Um, and then, of course, like you said, if they, if they want to get into the uh, the nerds, the, the numbers, and the nerdy side yeah. of baking with you know bakers' percentages, like I, I know I'm into, that's, <laughs> you still have that in the back. So I thought that was such a, a unique uh, approach. So um, thank you. Thank you. For, I, for that. Yeah, I was trying to create a book that I wasn't intimidated by because. I learned to bake before the baking books were really happening. I mean, the village baker had just come out and like, yeah, I was apprenticing in I think 93. And so, you know, uh, Dan leader's book eventually came out, which was great because it was like, Oh, Koosh or, you know, baskets. I mean, but like we, we didn't have, um, the books. So I was learning by doing, I was at the time I would vacation, you know, where's a baker that I can hang out with? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Alan Scott, he would do these gatherings at the Headlands every few years. And so like, I'd sort of been 
focused on baking for about seven years. And then Alan started doing these gatherings at the Headlands, which was great coming together with a bunch of bakers and getting exposed to stuff. So that was great. But every time I, I looked at a, you know, books started coming out, but I wasn't like, I was busy baking. And then when I first brought Dave, like when Dave Bauer from Sperry started his bakery out of my bakery um, and he was telling me, well, you can't, well, I mean, I remember like, I was like, my daughter was, um, <laughs> was in middle school in Asheville and I was commuting and I was like, I, can, I only have enough time. And I had just moved. I was like, I only have enough time to mix my flour and water. I'm just going to mix this and then come back and do it. And I was telling him about it. I was like, yeah, this really worked well. And he's like, yeah, it's called auto lease. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. You know? So like, I was like, or, or things that discovering I discovering these things, I was discovering them because I knew, I mean, it was always like, I was a single mom. So I was always kind of like playing around, like mm. with time and temperature. Mm-hmm. I, I started doing my own, you know, bulk, slow fermentation at cold temperatures because I was just so burnt out one day. I just like opened the windows mm. and like went to bed. Cause I was like, literally like putting my <laughs> daughter to sleep and then going in the bakery. And it was so not sustainable. And I just like threw a bunch of wood in the woods, in the bread oven, opened the windows, went to bed. And she was like, I couldn't believe the next morning I done that, you know, but I came <laughs> in sort of like, you know, like sort yeah, of yeah. like, yikes. And the bread, it was the best bake I'd ever had. And I was like, wow. oh, okay. So I put in a cool room, but like, That's amazing. you know, I wasn't reading about this in high hydration. It was one of those things where it was like, well, this is, I was mixing by hand. It was a lot easier. And I found that with, mm. with the length of time, it seemed to work better for me. So, you know, all that learning on the ground, it, when I would pick up a book that was a bread book, I found it incredibly intimidating. And I was like second guessing myself. And, you know, so I really wanted to create a book that was accessible and, um, you know, yeah. And had pretty pictures too. I thought Rin did an incredible job. Oh my job. goodness. Uh, they're yeah. Stunning. Makes me want to <laughs> get out there and, and visit you guys even, you know, just, take a bread tour, you know, or a, yeah, a farm yeah. tour. It's just, yeah, she, uh, they did an amazing job. I wanted to take a quick break from our interview to share with you some exciting news. I was recently invited to join the board of the Bakers in Need Fund, a 501c3 nonprofit organization founded by Tyler Cartner at WireMonkey. This fund was created to help bread bakers suffering financial duress due to the coronavirus. And since the start of the pandemic, the Bakers in Need Fund has given a total of 40 grants totaling over $10,000 to our baking community. When the crisis is over, the fund will remain to support bread bakers in need. We love the bread baking community and being a part of it and want to give back. If you'd like to learn more about the Bakers in Need Fund, make a donation or apply for a grant, please go to bakersinneed.org. Now back to the show. Yeah, so I mean, we've kind of talked about you know the um, getting bakers on board, and I'm thinking you know just as big of a part of that equation are the farmers and and getting them on board. What are some of the hurdles uh, you kind of faced, and or what were kind of maybe some of the partnerships that were really helpful early on, or maybe what were the part of that, what, what would be the hurdles, you know, with yeah. farmers and, and then convincing them to come on board this idea. Right. Um, you know, there was, I mean, I started out sort of like going to field days that the land grant university was, was hosting with the organic grains program at NC state. So I found that the farmers that were hosting some field trials were a unique, um, I mean, you had sort of like okay, there's farmers that were getting certified organic. I mean, we had some larger events happening as well that were really helpful to me that I wasn't even aware of, like Santa Fe Tobacco moved into our area. So it it really helped a lot of growers um, take on organic certification because it meant that they would have this like rotation, cro- a, a very lucrative crop. That mm-hmm. um, was one piece. Organic Valley, I think also um, establishing themselves in the South so, you know, we, um, and I'm sort of like meeting all of these entities at the field day. Um, but you know, in the beginning it would be like, okay, I want to talk to this farmer who's growing this or crop of like organic cotton. I want to see if he'll, and there's like the, the people that make the t-shirts that are at this field day too. And it's all like shiny and cool. And we want to be like in the game, but they're all 
but we're like on the outside looking in, you know, I'm eating like barbecue in a basement church, you know, the church, like, how do I get in this? You know, and, <laughs> but I've like asked Dr. Horton, like at, from NC state, like, who can I talk to? I want to see if they'll grow the wheat. And, mm. you know, and it's like, talk to that cousin and talk, and he talks to him and, you know, and I'm like walking out and the guy's like, Jennifer, you know, I heard you, I heard you want me to grow some wheat. I'm just like, so I was just like, okay, he's going to talk. It's worth listening. Cause there's not much he's going to say, you know? And <laughs> so that was like sort of the beginning of like, I'm okay. so intimidated by these people. I, I need to listen. I need to, you know, so that was like sort of the beginning, but then as I'm sort of stumbling into that sort of how helpful is this going to be to be intimidated by these people? Like what we need is to bridge the gap and to be able to really have conversations. In the beginning, it was hard because I did have that like sort of fear of stepping on the toes of, mm. you know, an entrenched culture that also had a very justifiable mistrust of Yeah, markets, you mentioned you know? that in the book. Yeah, about, yeah. They're just, you know, the mistrust, the, the being kind of burned in the past yeah. with yeah. You know, those relationships and, and then... On top of that, just, you know, farmers being, as you say, uh, an independent lot. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Nobody's like, oh, let's all do this together. I mean, everyone wants to kind of do their own, but which is fine. Like understand how each farmer wants to be. But one of the most beneficial relationships for me was with this farmer, Billy Carter, who grows, still grows our rye. Yeah. Um, he's in the Sand Hills of North Carolina, which is a really interesting area where it's a vein of sand. It's literally sand. And his pictures Sounds of his like farm. our, uh, our land out here in the central. Oh, Valley. really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And this is like the very, I think one of the very first pictures is, is, um, me and Billy in the, in the field. And, um, anyways, um, so Billy grows organic tobacco and he a diversified farm, mm. but he is one of those organic and the tobacco farmers, the organic tobacco farmers have already been vetted. So that was kind of a nice slice and it happens to rotate very well with wheat, mm. Mm. but he, he has both conventional acreage and organic acreage. And it has been really interesting to watch him go from like, you know, a couple thousand acres or something of conventional and 600 of organic to watch those numbers change where the organic has grown and grown for him oh. over the years. But he is someone who is just really well-respected in the farming community, both in the conventional world and the organic world. And that's kind of what I needed somebody mm. that, you know, so I started, he grew wheat for me for a few years and then he realized the rye really worked better on his fields. And mm -hmm. he really also, I mean, I really like him a lot. He's just, um, you know, he has one of his daughter's name is Hannah, same age as my Hannah. And, you know, like in going to visit the farm, it's just, really um it's he's such a kind man it's a beautiful farm it's it's well done and um and he he just sort of like it, it really helped for me to be able to mention his name when i was trying to establish relationships mm -hmm. with others okay. you know yeah um and so and and that was i mean in the beginning the organic farmer was kind of at the mercy of well, if you're a conventional farmer, your grain just goes to the grain elevator. If you're an organic farmer, you're going to have to store it in a bin. Mm. Harvest is really early here in the South. And um, and it would just like inevitably get bug damaged, you know, especially kind of over the year, over, over a few years of that practice. I started, and I wasn't the only player at like asking a grower to put something in a bin. I sort of stepped in. That was already a practice. But it was, you know, it was kind of no good for any of us because, but the, but there's this cash flow issue in the front end and a mill like ours, very beginning, no bank was going to give us a line of credit. So, you know, with Billy at one point I realized, I mean, we're, we're shifting things around now from freezer to CO2, but okay. for years we've been using a freezer facility and I, I found this freezer facility and I was like, Hey, I, I'd like to buy the whole crop at harvest. So we get it all off the farm. You don't have to have the risk of storing it, but I don't have the money to pay for this up front. Can I pay you over time? You know, and he was completely amenable to that. And it really helped sort of, you know, it, I mean, there, I realized that there were some farmers that would sell their crop that was organic at the grain elevator conventional just because of cash flow issues. Wow. So I was like, well, for all, if, if the farmer and the miller are the ones that are stuck with the cash flow issues, because the baker really isn't, you know, I mean, the baker, doesn't have to, you know, you all get to kind of buy your ingredient. I mean, you, you have to buy your flour, but it, it, it's not a huge 
commitment of cash mm-hmm, mm-hmm. out, you know, like the miller right, right. and the and the farmer. So, um, you know, it just having those like trustful relationships mm-hmm. for handshake, you know, I I of course I still want to see more diversity and more like you know, I, I'm, I'm super intrigued by heritage grains. I mean, our runs of rootsy rye is a heritage variety, but I mean like the wheats and all, um, it's, it, it, this is a really long story for us, you know, yeah. um, doing what works for the farmer. I mean, every year it's like a new conversation and hoping that we're building on something good from the year before. And like, we're just at the point it's about to be May. I can start holding my breath, (laughs) the dice are in the air, you know, I'm like, it's, it's like, you just kind of, I mean, I don't know if you've read the Laura Ingalls books, but like (laughs) as a father, but I I read those books with my daughter. And I remember like the, the one where like, it's, it's like near the end and she, they're growing a wheat crop and every year it's just like this failure. And I'm like, God, why do they keep growing it? You know, (laughs) what they did, you know? So yeah, it's That's, always interesting. Oh, I just, I mean, I love hearing, I mean, selfishly, like this is what I wanted to talk about, you know, having you on is because, you know, I, here in the Central Valley, you know, there's a, there's a handful of cottage bakers doing, you know, uh, artisan style bread using heritage and, and locally grown grains when we can get them or find them. And, and, and I've had these conversations that, you know, and it sounds like a lot of these things that you're talking about, like storage and, and cleaning and just how do you make all of these different moving parts flow together or even get them off the ground in the first place? Um, and, and so, you know, I have a couple, uh, I know a couple of farms out here. I mean, literally two, you know, um, that I've started to plant some wheat in oh, our local great. area. Yeah. And, and we've, and, and my buddy, John Eck, and then uh, covered bridge farm. And, but we're talking about probably 20 something acres combined in those two, you know, and so it's just, these are just experiments that are happening in my location um, that me and, and, and um, Bonnie O'Hara, she's a, a cottage baker at, at the town next to me you know, that we're having with local farmers and, and we're kind of sharing kind of like our, our passion for local grain economies and, and having these conversations and, and, and it's, you know, and, and so in my case, you know, uh, with my, my friend, John, who he's a potato farmer and almond farmer, he had, you know, experience with, um, cover crop rotation and like using rye and, and even like harvesting the rye, cleaning it and then reseeding it for like the Mm -hmm. next crop. Yeah. So we kind of had a lot of those parts in place, but obviously, as you know, there's a lot more to, um, you know, food grade grain than, and then just those two components like cleaning and and harvesting. But, um, and so, you know, I guess one of my biggest questions is like, how do we get more movements like the one that you've grown up in, uh, around Carolina ground to happen around the U S um, in places like in, in the thing about where I live is like the central Valley is like one of the most fertile, uh, farmlands in the, in the world, like valleys in the world, like, uh, the amount of produce, but you know, it's, it's really like in our past is where the wheat was grown. Like before irrigation is, this is like something that happened hundred years ago, um, that kind of established this valley, um, and the farms that were here, but that's, you know, a hundred years ago. And how do we kind of, how, how do you think we can bring that back and, you know, do what you've done, uh, where we live and and what are some, you know, keys to success that you've, that's a lot, that's a big question. question. (laughs) I know because we, we have the benefit of certain infrastructure in place. Like they grow more soft wheat in North Carolina than any other Southern state. Mm. So, um, so there's an eye to grains at the land grant university. Although I can't imagine, I mean, I know that like Steve Jones went to school in Chico and is, I mean, you know, so. Well, and as far as infrastructure, it, it you know, we have like the UC system and like UC right. Davis and they're well, doing lots of research and we have. Well, like, and I'll say, I'm sorry. Oh, like the California uh, Wheat Commission, you know, Mm -hmm. we have all of these kind of uh, 
allies around and, and doing these things. Uh, and yet it, it seems to me that they, we're still lacking the momentum to get these things. Right. Up, you know, but utilizing place. them, like I yeah. used to think, oh gosh, you know, can I trust the USDA or, you know, like I used to have such mistrust and then realize like, oh, this can be a collaborative thing. This can, we can make this what we need it to be. So one interesting thing for us is, you know, there are very few seed cleaners around and why are there so few seed cleaners around? Because GMO wheat, I mean, GMO corn sort of did away with it in a huge mm. way, GMO mm. seed, because, you know, I was talking to Jeff Griffin, who's does a lot of our cleaning and he's amazing. And he is, I mean, the, I think there's two seed cleaners in the whole state of North Carolina that are like private entities, Griffin seed, which used to be owned by um, Godwin and he sold it to Jeff and they're, they're both amazing people. But, and then, and then I think there's one in Passaqua County and the Far East. And I asked Jeff, I was like, you know, he's from this area. Like, what did it used to look like? And he's like, there used to be seed cleaners in every community because mm. people would save their own seed. Mm. But now people can't save their seed because it's hybrid seed or this GMO seed or, you know, whatever it is. Mm. But the GMO was like a real big push, you know, because the corn, you know, people can't replant their corn if it's GMO seed and that's just ubiquitous. But what happened in our area was interesting. So Jeff grows our, I mean, he cleans our rye or any growers that are on that end of the state around him. But I have some growers east of Raleigh and that's where the um, foundation seed is. So foundation seed is like, you know, quasi-governmental land grant university associated um, they're going to, in the old school system of seed before the privatization, all seed went through foundation seed and they would come inspect seed. Like if somebody was growing the seed to create certified seed. And so, and that certified seed was planted by the foundation seed. So, you know, the whole sort of long tradition of, you know, the seedsman and the breeder and, you know, all of that. So th that's kind of what they do. But I, and and they and they used to be the organic certifier before the USDA took over. So mm. like I know Dr. Bowman over there knows organic, and we've you know I and and also just like understanding your landscape. I kind of saw that like Dr. Bowman and Dr. Marshall maybe weren't like understanding each other. So I'm like trying to bridge that gap too, you know. And where's the seed going to be released? And, and explaining to Dr. Bowman mm. what these seeds are like. Appalachian white newies because they it's not all connected. I mean, it's not like they understand application. They're used to like feed or cover crop or you know, and here I am with this like food grade thing. Yeah. And so we've all kind of been learning from each other. But I had a few farmers. So Dr. Bowman told me about um about Tony Horton, who now grows our Appalachian white, just like down the road from him. Oh, he's a good grower, he's grown certified seed. You know, well, here's a farm a grower that's going to grow out some certified seed is going to be really careful, you know, and he has organic acreage. So he knew I was looking for that. Well, Tony and Blake Barnum, who are both kind of close that grow for us, they talked Dr. Bowman into cleaning their grain for them instead okay. of us shipping it all the way to the other side of the state. So here's this part of like the land grant university that's now but they're, you know, they can make a profit. It's fine for them to clean for us and we'll pay them as long as it works, you know, yeah, yeah. and it serves the farmer and it serves our entity as well. So that was a really kind of, I don't know, a good example of, of the potential of making these institutions work for us, which was the original intent to mm -hmm. begin with, not just to like serve industrial agriculture, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of bringing it back down to a smaller scale collaborating. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Cause I know that that's a huge issue is the cleaning side of it. And and yeah, we're in, the, I think the farmers that I've talked to are in the same boat. They'll be having to like ship their grain, you mm -hmm. know, hundreds of miles away um, to far, far reaches of the state or maybe even Oregon to like get their grain clean and then ship it back. So. Yeah. And it's like post harvest and handling storage. That's where the, I mean, it's, Storage, yeah. That's it's like growing it is the is the easy part in a way, you know, like that post harvest. Um, but yeah, the storage. I was talking to um, James Brown from Barton Springs Mill. He's doing wonderful stuff over there, and he um, turned me onto this VQM machine, which is gonna we're 
hopefully it's a success. He's doing it in Texas successfully, I'm pretty sure. VQM, <laughs> is that vacuum or CO2? It is. It's oh. both. So you put this blue bag over the tote and you open it up and you throw CO2 in there and then you vacuum it. And that's, you know, we're literally okay. importing it right now. So like, I am hoping that this works for us because, um, I mean, it should, it should, it's hermetic seal and they use hermetic, you know, in, I know a lot in Argentina. And so that way we can avoid shipping twice. We can go directly from the cleaner to our facility and, you know, avoid the fossil fuels, avoid the expense and the energy and all of it, Mm. um, a freezer. So I love bringing grain in from a freezer though. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, it's just a huge, uh, expense that a lot of, you know, like the farmers that I'm working with, they're not able to just go and build a, a massive refrigeration unit to store. Oh, no, grain, I had to find, know, I found and... one place in the state that could handle totes. You know, like I store our stuff at this freezer facility in Winston-Salem and it's like 20 below zero. I've gone in there to <laughs> check grain and I'm like, oh my God, this yeah. is really cold. Like I didn't bring a jacket that is like <laughs> dying. <laughs> yeah. But that, you know, that's also just like for, for these farmers too, this is just an experiment, you know, for, for, for them at this level, like, well, we'll see. Yeah. In theory, it'd be great to like, you know, get a higher price for like a, 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 an heritage or heirloom grain than, than the rye that I'm growing for Mm -hmm. uh, cover crop. And so right now we're all in this experimental mode. And and so like putting these pieces together with the storage and the, and if you have that comfort, I mean, that what you're having farmers that are willing to work with you on experimental level, like that's huge. Like I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm sort of like, I don't know. I I have a conservative lot of Southern growers that are, are, you know, there's, we're working on this year by year, but it's like, I, I'm really lucky to have modern wheat varieties that are, I mean, I, I I think if I walked up to them from the get, you know, from the beginning with this like heritage variety, it would have been a really hard pill to swallow. And, you know, I'm, I still have it in my back pocket, but I'm kind of waiting till mm. it feels like, can we just try like five or 10 acres over here? Yeah. yeah you know, exactly. Try this thing and see what happens. Cause at the worst case scenario, you'll have some really good straw, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can't be more, I couldn't be more excited about like the, the, the opportunity for me to have like this hyper localized yeah, grain growing. I've had some, um, I think we're, they're putting in some Durham, uh, some Sonora. Oh, that's amazing. Yakora Rojo rye. Nice. And then, uh, wi- uh, walk, walkering. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, these are, I guess they're kind of more, uh, Mediterranean drier. Right. Which is what settled in your part of the country. Yeah. And so I've, I've, I've had this, Sonora, I've been using the Sonora, which has kind of been my first like foray into the to the heritage grain, um, from a farm called uh, frog hollow farm in the Bay area, which is you know, about 45 minutes away from me, but it's, you know, they do have a big refrigeration setup and, oh, wow. and, and they have the cleaners. It's like just the most beautiful, plump, shiny, That's clean grain I've ever, I've ever That's experienced. Amazing. So if I'm just, you know, but then having that come closer to where I live and, and be able to offer that to my customers through my cottage bakery, but that's again, you're you're you now you're getting to like educating your customers and like and like why is this like something that's valuable and and well like my friend Eduardo Morel, do you know Eduardo Morel is Morel's bread? He sells um I first met him through Allen and he had a his bakery started out in the Headlands um art center there and now he's in Berkeley, oh, him and Tana. No, and, I don't know him. Yeah, but... and wonderful people, him and his wife whose name just escaped me. But um but I remember talking to Eduardo like 10 years ago about, um, because we used to do these gatherings of the headlands and, um, and, you know, first getting exposed to local flour back then. And this was more than 10 years ago. This was like 15 or 20 years. Anyways, Eduardo started doing a local loaf and it would sometimes be in a pan, sometimes be in a hearth. He still does it today. But I remember talking to him about it. I guess the first time we talked about it was like 10 years ago. And he said, you know, he had a following for that bread 
more than anything, because people always want to know what, you know, it just, it depended on the wheat that he got. It might be a pan loaf. It might be a hearth loaf. It really depends, but it huh. always had its own story and it, and it had its own following and it was always going to be hundred percent local. Uh, and I think that. that that's a great way to approach it. And then also you mentioned like production bakers that need this consistency. I don't think that it's going to, I personally feel like it's only going to amplify the flavor, but not mess with the, with the, um, function or functionality or structure of your bread to add a certain percentage of stone ground flour in there. You know, I mean, it yeah. might be like a small percentage, but it's going to elevate the flavor and teeth of the bread. And, you know, if you're, if you're blending and you need, you know, I mean, it's. And that's kind of the level that I'm at with my artists. I've only been doing this for about a year for, you know, like professionally, if you will, like um, selling my bread with like a permit and everything. Um, and that's kind of what I've been doing. I've been, you know, I have like an organic roller milled flour that I mm -hmm. add like 20 to 25%, nice. um, you know, fresh milled Sonora yeah. or whatever I can that's get my lovely. hands on yeah. when I can get my hands on it. And, and you know, like 5% rye, whole grain rye. So nice. that's kind of where I am. But I have these dreams and visions of having something like what you guys have out in the South. And, um, but Jennifer, we've gone over an hour. I told you I'd keep you under an hour. Um, so I'll I'll throw a softball question at you because you have so many to to end it here um, with a with an easy lob. But uh, you have over seventy five beautiful, um, unique recipes from all of your bakers throughout the South that are using your flour. Um, you call it a love letter to Southern baking, which I think is a, a very appropriate expression. Um, Here's the softball question. What do you have a favorite? I know you have some of your own included in there, like rustic uh, peasant bread and some uh, day some breads. But uh, and, and I'm sure this is a, a go to question. But uh, uh, do I have a favorite? A recipe? favorite. <laughs> yeah, mm, that is a hard question. <laughs> um, let's see. I do. I mean, I I make a lot of rye bread in my for my own self. So I've been mm. really having fun. Kind of. I I never strict strictly stick with the recipe if I don't have like if I'm doing like I'm really intrigued by the Russian scalded rye that's from walnut schoolhouse bread um mm. and honestly I've played around with that like oh you know the miller that doesn't have the right flour in the house and I'm like well I'm just gonna throw this in and it's you yeah. know um and also Gregorio's Vulcan Brot another one that I've played around with a lot you know um but and oh my gosh Joe Bowie's Danish rye is so simple and just beautiful and there, I don't know. I have a lot of things. <laughs> also, his salted rye brownies are ridiculous. Dave Bauer's buckwheat cookies are insane. That's kind of um, an unfair oh, oh, question. Little tarts, chocolate. I mean, they're, they're peanut butter. Um, I think this is salted peanut butter cookie we've made with, with um, spelt. That's a great... But I don't know. There's... Yeah. I'm not There's sure a lot if to I have like from. a... Yeah. Flat rock... Flat rocks biscotti. I really, and then, there, yeah, I don't know. I, I know. And I don't want to buy, it's like, I'm like, I don't want to choose favorites. It's like, cause you like know, you don't want to be that kind of parent. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was really interested in like all of them. There's a, a couple or maybe more, uh, Mish, uh, recipes uh, yeah. and just for me, it was, was like really intriguing to be like, Oh, make a Mish, but like with, uh, 75, uh, percent extraction or like an 85 extraction and or in how just using those different yeah i was what i was intrigued by with the miche was a few things one i was fascinated by the fact the first time i had flower rocks miche which is the cover of the book i was blown away because i couldn't believe it was the same bread as their north carolina sourdough and it was so interesting to me to see what happens when you have this you know, you're going to bake it longer and slower and that different ratio of crumb to crust, you know, I mean, it just changes the flavor of the bread completely. It's just so interesting. Then on the other side, um, looking at like the Mish baby or, um, you know, Weaver Street's Mish and seeing these, like, you know, the two cultures and using a rye culture and a wheat culture and, in the same bread. Like I, mm. I just, I learned a bunch, you know, working yeah. with these bakers recipes. It was super fun. And they're a great group of bakers. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, you know, one of these days, I, I hope I can, uh, do a little Southern ground tour. And, yeah. Well, uh, you'll just, have to come. Yeah. Uh, I would love it. It's a, a bucket list. I have we're, lots of bucket lists when I talk to my guests, but nice. uh, so we're moving our facility right now, or we're hoping to in the next couple of months, we're in construction zone right now, but we'll have, um, a little, um, 
loft above the, we'll have a place for you to stay. Oh, so, really? Okay. Yes. Okay. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Part of the story is to be able to kind of be a place. Uh, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Well, hey, Jennifer, thank <laughs> you so much on. for coming on. And I, I could talk with about you on this topic for hours and I want to like pull in my, my farmer friends and my other artisan, you know, craft bakers in my area and just jump on a call with you and just pick your brain. Cause I feel like you just have so much wisdom on this topic and you've put so much, uh, uh, effort and time and, uh, of your life into this, um, project. And, uh, I just, I know it's going to be, this book is going to be part of this. Like we talked about, just like get the ball rolling and, and keep it rolling uh, for this movement to grow and grow and, and, and just keep, you know, be able to bring delicious, nutritious flour to our communities. So thank you for that. And thank, thank you for, you for this having beautiful me. book. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope to post pandemic, make it back out to California because we love, yes, my husband's from California. So yes. we love that land out there. Well, we'll have to maybe uh, meet up in wherever you're going to be, San Francisco Bay Area or something, <laughs> or, or coming out to Turlock. We're in the middle of nowhere but uh nice we got we got uh lots of lots of bread and and farmers and yeah we'd, Sounds uh, great. we'd love to have you so thank, thank you, you jennifer have a great afternoon and, and we'll we'll talk soon all right <laughs> take care thanks for listening the sourdough podcast is produced by michael hilburn and edited by caleb sexton all music is by weston perry thanks again to our main sponsor of this episode tyler at wire monkey shop you can find their products and support the Bakers in Need Fund created by Tyler by clicking on links in the show notes of this episode. And be sure to head over to the sourdoughpodcast.com where you can find exclusive recipes from our guests, as well as cookbook and gear recommendations, previous episodes, and more. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the podcast by purchasing a Sourdough Podcast t-shirt, coffee mug, or UFO long. If you're strapped for cash, a five-star rating and review on iTunes would also go a long way, and you would help tremendously to share the podcast with others. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.